We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning, if you will turn there. The Bible tells us that God looks at the heart. What we call the little things or the, the hidden things, God sees as the big things. Integrity, for instance. There's an endearing story told of the man who become, become the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. Whether this story is true or not, I don't exactly know, but it's one that we always heard growing up, um, that as a young shop clerk, he realized he had inadvertently either overcharged a woman for a couple of pennies for tea, or he had not given her her change back. And at the end of the day, he walked miles to return this these pennies to her in the dark. And it was in those little things, in those pennies, that he showed his integrity, which would later... Um, move him on to a man of being a principle, of uh, not giving up. And so it's a little thing that shows your integrity over the big things. Recently I saw a notebook that my mother sent scans. She was going through some things and found this notebook that my grandfather had written. I'd asked him some questions about my family tree in 1990. And he's since passed, and it was really cool seeing things written in his hand where he's, he's answering these questions about our family and one thing he said that was interesting, remember 1990 is when he wrote this, he said the last president he voted for that one was Harry Truman, which is in the 40s, and he believed that he would go down as one of the best presidents ever, um, not because of he, he budgeted, he balanced the budget, or because of his policies, but because of his honesty. He says he says it how it is, and for that he is the best. He's the best one ever. So it was this little thing that was, in his mind, a defining characteristic of the man. And it, it may not be integrity that we look for in politicians today or you know, in, in people necessarily, but for qualifications. We look for education, experience, uh, results, really. But personal integrity is critical in the life of a Christian. So important. It means to be honest, upright, whole, and undivided. It means that there's no distinction between the things that you believe, the things you say, and how you live. Whether it's a public matter or a private matter, you are consistent in the way that you live your life. And the things that we require of others, we should also do. Whether or not anyone sees us. Whether it's involving a couple of cents or millions of dollars. Let's pray. Let's thank the Lord for his goodness to us. Lord, you are a great God. And thank you that you have opened our eyes to see that. That you are a God who is totally and absolutely consistent with the things that you say and what you do. And that we can count on your word. Lord, thank you that there is no shadow of turning in you. For this reason, we are not consumed. Thank you for your promises that remain true to this day. Regardless of, of our failings or our ignorance, Lord, you remain the same, and we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that by the power of Jesus Christ, you would fill us with your spirit today, that you give us ears to hear, that we would be people of integrity, as Nehemiah was, and you'd show us how this relates to our lives and how we can put it into practice, in Jesus' name, amen. The children of Israel were united in building the walls of Jerusalem. Their enemies surrounding them, and they band together. They, they stay late. They stay all night to guard. They say, we're going to work during the day. We're going to be security guards overnight. 
they're armed with their, their sword in, in, uh, by their side and they're carrying the burdens. And though the building project continued, all wasn't well among those people. There were issues that needed to be sorted out. We think that if there's this great work of God, there's not going to be conflict either outside or inside. And we see in this case, both were happening. As the progress was being made on the walls, the gaps were being filled in, there was an exposure of cracks in the integrity of God's people. There was a famine in the land. It had led to poverty. When you're working on the wall, you couldn't work on your fields. You couldn't be making money, so you were losing out. And there were people who were in debt, who were being oppressed by other Jewish people who had wealth. There was oppression, and they forgot to keep God's laws that he had given them. I like what it says in Psalm 37, 37. It says, Mark the blameless man, observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. You don't have to be a fortune teller to know that you see someone who's walking uprightly, according to God's standard, their future is peace. And that is, I mean, that's what we want, right? Don't we earnestly desire to be at peace with God and to be at peace with him and others forever? So a man rich in integrity has much more value than the greatest monetary net worth you could command. It's so valuable to be a person of integrity, and it's God who enables us to do that. So Nehemiah 5, verse 1, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Because of the famine, all these conflicts among the people who were working together were exposed. had nothing to do with the construction project. The people were impoverished. They had many mouths to feed. And they were in the midst of this famine. And because they needed to eat, they borrowed against their homes as collateral to to eat. I mean, they had to survive. And they weren't able to pay back their creditors because they didn't have access to their groves and their their, uh, land anymore. Like being an agrarian society, you would have to uh, grow some food, sell the food, pay the debt. But if the land isn't yours anymore, if you're not permitted to live on it, if your children have gone into slavery, you have less people working for you, it's very difficult to pay. So they were just in this spiraling debt. Two other children of Israel. Now, under the law, all the land was the Lord's. It wasn't to be owned by anyone permanently. It was permanently God's, and God made his people stewards of it. Each tribe and each family in that tribe was given a plot of land that was theirs, and it would pass from generation to generation. In Leviticus 25.23, it says, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now, if a family fell on hard times, they could sell the property, and it would be valued based upon when the Jubilee year came, because every 50 years was the Jubilee year. And so if you had 30 years left before the Jubilee and the release of it back to your family, it would be worth a lot more than, let's say, three years, because you would have time to plant, harvest, plant, harvest, and then you were turning it back to them. So uh, you could do it, but not permanently. It would revert back to the original owner. 
And you guys have played Monopoly, right? You're like, ugh, groan, groan, yes. You know that if you mortgage your property for cash and you flip it upside down, should someone land on your property, you can't charge them rent, right? You can't have a house or a hotel on a mortgage property. You have to mortgage your houses and your hotels, and then you mortgage the property. To get it back, you have to pay plus 10% to flip that card over and to be able to charge people again, right? Well, because they didn't have their lands or access to their lands, they couldn't charge rent. They, could, they had no income. And so they were all, they were starving, they were working hard, and they saw no way out. There were people profiting from their poverty, and they were their brothers. And this had to be dealt with. Verse 4, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. People owned property. They were being charged by King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And the people that didn't want to mortgage their lands, they borrowed from others to pay their debts. And if they defaulted on those debts, the rule was is that you would have to be a slave to recover those funds. Now, the slavery outlined in the book of Moses is not the picture of slavery that we see in the world uh, today or years in the years past. It involves man stealing and flesh trading. That was condemned by God under the punishment of death if you were to do that, to kidnap someone, to see it, to, to sell them into slavery. That was not on. But the system was, if I chose, willingly chose to borrow from you and I defaulted on it, I had agreed to the terms, I wasn't able to fulfill my obligations, well, then I would be obligated to serve you for six years as your slave. And this allowed you to recoup some of your losses that you're not getting because there's no bankruptcy or people uh, getting bought out or something you would be able to recover your funds, and it also served as a deterrent for me to to take bad loans. So people weren't just borrowing and borrowing, because no matter who you were, you would have to serve that person for six years. So the seventh year, you would go free. You wouldn't have to pay anything. Under the Roman system, years later, in very rare cases, people could work to earn money, set that money aside, and buy their freedom. But not under the law. It says in Exodus 21.2, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. Now, if my, uh, let's say my niece or my nephew had been sold into slavery, even my son or daughter, I could redeem them. I could pay a price to buy them out of slavery so they'd no longer have to be a slave. So they wouldn't have to even serve the six years as long as I paid it. But the people said, we don't have any income. We don't have any lands. We, we don't even own anything to make money. So how are we going to pay off these debts? And our kids, they're now slaves of other people. These poor people, they weren't lazy. They weren't facing the consequences of living beyond their means. These were hardworking, responsible people who were being taxed by the king of Persia. They were working on the walls. There was a famine in the land. There was a lot out of their control. And no matter what they did, they were in debt. They complained that those who had greater wealth 
were profiting from their poverty. Some among God's people had the means to help their brothers and sisters, but they were cashing in on this opportunity to increase their land holdings and to acquire more servants. They were going by the book in one sense, but not according to the grace of God who wrote the book. Right? They were do everything they were doing was perfectly legal, but it was unethical because they had the means to help and they they chose to instead profit from it. In the church, people are called to bear one another's burdens and at the same time to carry their own load. Paul concludes in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So instead of seeing the poverty of some, some person as an opportunity to enrich yourself, we should seek it as an opportunity to, to bless them and to serve the Lord, to do things unto him. And that's um, what Nehemiah was doing. But we see his response. He's very raw with his assessment of the situation, but we'll see very well-weighted as well. Verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. When Nehemiah heard this, it says he was very angry when he heard of what was going on. This week in our discipleship course, we discussed how there are some things that should anger us. It's not sin in itself to be angry when there's unrighteousness, when there is uh, this sort of greed and oppression among God's people, then that is a cause. I mean, God has given us emotions and feelings, and they're good indicators of whether something's right or wrong in our life. But what he does is wise. He doesn't just react. It says, I gave it serious consideration. So he waited. He didn't just go, oh my goodness. He, he thought about the implications. He thought about what the word said. And it's good for us. It's difficult for us in emotional situations um, to be angry without sin. And it's, it's good for us to ask questions like, is it right for me to be angry? Why am I angry? And, and nail that down. Don't just let it go. You feel angry, but ask, why am I angry? Really, do I feel offended because of something they said? Am I offended because of something they did? Figure out why you're angry. Then decide if you're choosing to remain angry. Like, am I allowing anger to turn to bitterness and resentment in my heart? And, and what constructive steps have I taken in responding to this feeling of anger? Not just feeling angry and moving on, but actually dealing with the source of it. This is a way that we can biblically deal with our anger. So Nehemiah does a wise thing. He doesn't immediately react. He considers. And because this widespread practice was across the rulers and the leaders, he says, I called an assembly against them. So he addresses them personally. He doesn't talk about how bad it is or keep to himself about how, how he's kind of angry about the way that they're treating others and not saying anything because they're wealthy, they're leaders. But he gathers against them and he says, I rebuked them. 
Each of you is exacting usury from his brothers. Now, usury isn't a word we use very often. It means interest. The law strictly forbade charging interest to a fellow Jew. If you were to loan somebody that was a, a brother or a neighbor, you were not to charge them interest. If it was a foreigner, you had the right under the law too. And people were reminded, you don't charge them interest because you too at a point were poor. You have the ability now to lend money. There was a time when you didn't have money. Remember how poor you were as slaves in Egypt. Treat them as you would have liked to have been treated. Don't oppress one another. Deuteronomy 23, 19, it says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. So things that you could charge interest for, he says, you're not to do that. It says in verse 20, To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord may bless you in all that which you set your hand to in the land which you are entering to possess. So while they were enriching themselves with money, they were actually denying the blessings of God if they were obedient to his word. They with So they were enriching themselves with cash, but not the blessing of God. And you can decide which one you think is more important or which you would rather have. So he rebukes them under the word. Now, did you know that rebuke was actually required under the law? I did not know this. Turn to Leviticus 19, verse 15. 15 through 18. So Leviticus 19, verse 15. There's a lot of different ways Nehemiah could have dealt with this issue, but he really deals with it head on. He rebukes them, and that's what he was called to do. It's really, rebuke is when you call somebody out not to humiliate them, not to embarrass them in front of other people, but just with the guilty or offending party with the purpose of seeing them restored to a right standing before God. That's the purpose. So it's not to make yourself look good. It's not to make them look bad. It's to get this problem corrected and to do it in a loving way. Leviticus 19.15, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you see, he's not overlooking their sin because of their status or their wealth. And he doesn't uh, become embittered towards them and just go, okay, you know what? I'm just going to let this go. They are the leaders. I'm not going to say anything. Because then he'd be actually having a sin in his heart against them when he's supposed to rebuke them. So he says, don't bear sin, don't have a grudge, but deal with that person directly. And he rebuked them to uphold God's righteousness. It wasn't on a matter of opinion. This is something uh, from the word. He's saying, God made you free from bondage, and yet you're going to enslave your brothers? God set you free, and you're going to be acquiring slaves that are your brothers? Think about it, guys. And when he called them out for charging interest, it says they were silent. They had nothing to say. 
Now, in Nehemiah's day, they were under the law, and we see this agreeing with the law's purpose in Romans 3.19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's the purpose of the law. When you bring the law to an unregenerate person, someone who is not in Christ, it's speaking to their, it's exposing their sin, right? And what can you say when it says it right here? So they had no, they had no defense because they knew what the law said. And, and maybe they felt like it was okay because everyone else was doing it and uh, the other nations were doing it. And it, it was only a small amount, as we'll find out. The Bible says in Romans 10.4 that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Now, Jesus has fulfilled the law, but Jesus has never opposed or contradicted what was written in the law. Like if you read through this passage in Leviticus 19, you can read through that and say, yeah, this is all good. It says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? But Jesus says, I say to you, love uh, one another as I have loved you. So he's not saying, oh yeah, all that was terrible, all that was lame. No, this is good, this is righteousness. But he calls us to even a greater standard according to the leading of his spirit to love others as he loves us. Nehemiah 5, verse 9. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, Let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Nehemiah is a man of integrity. He says it as it is. And I like how objective he is. He says, what you're doing is not good. It reminds me of what Paul says. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Like they're able to say something objectively and clearly like this is wrong. What you're doing is not good. And I like that it's said in a positive way because we should choose to do good, not just to avoid wrong. So he says, what you're doing is not good. You're charging these people. You're not walking in the fear of God. If you fear God, you'll obey him. So if you fear God, please, guys, and he puts himself there, let us stop this usury. We have to stop this practice. But you see, Nehemiah, he was already doing the right thing. He says, me and and my brothers, we've already been lending people wine and grain and the things that they need. We're not charging them interest. And not only should you stop charging interest, but you should give back everything that you've taken. Give back their groves and their vineyards and, and their kids and, and the, the 1% that you've been taking from them. 1%. That's pretty shocking, right? The hundredth of the grain and the wine and the oil. And you would think, if he's saying, guys, we've got to stop this interest that you're charging, it would have been like, You know, some of the credit card companies, like 20, 24% compounding interest. No, it was 1% they were requiring. But it was 100% too much. 1% 
but 100% too much. 1% of inconsistency is enough to spoil man's integrity before man and God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, God requires perfection. And who among us is perfect, right? Are our lives utterly consistent? No. Praise God that we're made perfect. We are made perfect through faith in Jesus Christ. We are made righteous. We will sin, but those who have been made perfect, their response will be when aware of sin, when called out on it, will confess their sin and repent. That's the righteous response. We see that happening with with, uh, Zacchaeus, right? Here's this, uh, I guess, infamously short gentleman who had been, uh, he was a head tax collector and he had been enriching himself through overtaxing people. Who knows how long. But when salvation and Jesus came to his house, what did he say? He wasn't asked to do it. He wasn't rebuked about it. Jesus didn't even mention anything about his finances, but he says, I freely give half of my goods to the poor and anything I have swindled someone out of, I'm giving back fourfold. He's not just giving it back what he took. He's giving back times four. You go, whoa. So we see that response. It's just a supernatural response in a person. When you realize you've been doing the wrong thing, you're going to choose to do what's right. Now, I'm sure Nehemiah was glad to have a consensus. This could have gone any number of ways. Here he is, the the wine uh, steward over in Shushan, coming over, and now he's calling all these leaders out who live there, and he's saying, guys, what you're doing is wrong. This is not good, what you're doing. And and they could just say, you know what, Nehemiah, we've had about enough of you. We know that you're coming over here to do good, but please, on your bike, go. We've got this handled. But they they listen, and they say, you're right. We're going to restore. We will do this. So I'm sure there's something in them that goes, good. This is great. We're moving in the right direction. But he doesn't just take their word for it. He calls the priest. He's, all right, priest, please come over here. I want you guys to swear before God that you're going to do it. These guys understood contracts. And this was legally binding. There's wisdom here for us. Uh, in a lot of projects with friends or with fellow Christians that I've made over the years, I never bothered to write actually a written contract about uh, the product that I was buying or the services that I was expecting. Never really wrote anything out because, hey, we're buddies or we're, we're fellow believers. We'll sort this out. And I got to say, it's led to a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of hurt feelings and expectations that were unmet on both sides. And Nehemiah, he saw fit to take this extra step of taking this oath because money was involved. And it's wise for us to think about in our dealings with others that we would write out, we would go an extra step to just clarify and be transparent about what our expectations are and what are, what are the services we agree to have rendered for a cost? Even with transparency, even with a contract, we can still have conflict, can't we? It doesn't solve everything. But when we're walking in love and we choose to 
to, in the fear of the Lord, to do what is good, we don't have to be holding out with resentment, I guess. One criticism that Paul had of the church in Corinth is how they seemed unable to solve their conflicts themselves. He called them out about this. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Now I don't know one person who goes to court and hopes to lose. I think everyone who goes to court wants to win. They want a settlement or something in their favor, right? But he says, if you've reached a point where you can't lovingly, with your brother or your sister, come to an agreement, then you've lost, both of you, no matter what the courts judge. You know, you, you've lost. So we have to walk in love. And i got to say, there's been times when I have accepted wrong. I have been unjustly used. But I didn't necessarily rebuke that person. And I was resentful and bitter against them. And the Lord had to reveal to me, um, because I couldn't see it, that I was wrong because of the way I was feeling towards them after they had done the wrong thing. So it's good for us to do good, right? In our, in our business dealings, in our personal dealings with others, whether they're believers or not. I love the united heart, the commitment of these leaders to do right by God. Even when they were 1% off, even when there was 1% that was that they had been charging, that was wrongfully charged, they did all they could to make it right before God. Nehemiah 5.13, Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. If we will have blessings from God, we also must acknowledge curses and the power of them. And he basically, after they have now sworn before the Lord that they're going to do this thing, he empties his pockets. So he shakes out the fold of his garment where he would store things. He says, hey, if you guys don't follow through, may God do this to you. Just empty you out of your property. And what's their response? They go, oh, threat. What's this? No, they're like, amen. Praise the Lord. They're like worshiping. They're glad to be doing the right thing again. Something had been brought to their attention. They were doing wrong. They owned it, and they did what's right, and they're joyous. They're rejoicing, even though it's going to cost them something. And that is such a heart that I want to have, where we can, when we receive correction from the Lord, we can rejoice in that. Because now we're going to have fellowship with God again like we weren't able to have before. And we'll be able to stop doing the wrong thing, and start doing the good thing. The things that we say are really important. God will hold us accountable whether a court of law does or not. It's in line with what God said in Numbers 31 and 2. It says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. It used to be said that a man's uh, word is his bond. And then people started crossing their fingers and putting them behind their back and saying it like, oh, I didn't really mean it. Yeah, I said it. 
And then you had to get a stack of Bible, not just one Bible, but a stack of Bibles that you would swear on to say, I am really, really sure, you know, and I'd stick a needle in my eye or whatever we used to say to say that you really, really mean it. Yeah, I've never seen anyone do that. I've heard a lot of people say it. Of course, we were probably in year three or year four at the time. But uh, never actually seen someone stick the proverbial needle in the eye. And it's a good thing they didn't. Um, because it was probably deserved here or there. But I love their response. He said, yeah, may God shake out everyone who doesn't keep their word. And they're like, amen. Right on. Preach it, brother. We're all in this together. And they were unified in doing good. And may that be true for us too, that we'd be unified in doing what's right. I mean, that, that I would be the same when God reveals this 1% thing. It's a little thing. But he's like, yeah, it's 100% wrong, that thing. And that I, you think about how one fly can spoil the ointment or that one hair can put you off eating that entire bowl of soup. Um, one little thing can make a big difference. And we're saying, God, this is my offering to you. And there's that 1% there that's displeasing in his sight. It will have an impact on your relationship with him. Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. They're there working for the Lord. They're serving one another. Nehemiah was appointed by King Artaxerxes as governor over the land of Judah for 12 years. And so we know, since he's writing this here, that this was... This book was written after. It's a reflection of his time as governor in Israel. So he was the highest ranking government official for 12 years. And as a Persian appointed governor, he had the right to many fringe benefits. He explains how governors before, they would tax the people on their food. He would command 40 shekels of silver from them. And he could also make them work on their pet projects. And he says even... These governors, their servants bore rule over the people. They could command the people to do whatever they wanted. But I did not do that. And the fact he's saying this now and not at the time, he's not trying to boast. He's not trying to get favor with the people. He is simply stating the facts that he did not, he forewent the rights or the privileges of his role because he saw the people suffering. He didn't want to burden them and because he feared God. Because he believed that God was going to supply his needs, which he was, he trusted him. And he says, I worked on that wall with my servants. He was on, he was there. He was on the job site working. Paul, he goes as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so that no one could say, hey, you're trying to just get rich off the gospel. He didn't, char- he didn't even receive an honorarium from them at times. He would just be building tents, making tents. And he supported himself in the work because that was a good witness for God. So he worked with his hands. He could have asked for 
uh, payment, but he did not. And Jesus, really, he's our prime example. He, he owns everything. Everything is his. And he comes down, doesn't even have a house, has no property, has no fields or vineyards or groves or anything. And he works in his father's vineyard every day for free. His whole life. He became of no reputation. He took the form of a servant, the servant of all. Now you might say, well, Nehemiah must have been pretty rich. He had tons of money, so it's a small sacrifice for him, seeing as he had so much. Now it's true Nehemiah was rich, as we'll see. He was quite a wealthy man. But I believe his sacrifice is all the greater for it. That's why Christ's sacrifice is so great, is because of how wealthy he is. Now Nehemiah, he is a he was a rich man, but he refused to enrich himself at the expense of others. People dream of being rich, but what rich person dreams of being poor? You could be poor if you want to, man. You could give it all away. You could have nothing if you wanted, right? <laughs> it's the one without the money who says, oh, it's easy for them because they have it. They have more than me, so it must be easy for them to give. Not true. He was willing to go into the red month after month, year after year, without demanding anything from the people because he feared God. Clearly, God was supplying his needs. And you say, well, what more could you want? Well, a lot more, right? You could want a lot more. I just heard the other day there was this major sting in the Commonwealth. They, they've been tracking it for a year. Okay, $165 million allegedly stolen from the Commonwealth. And yet it was all these small little things that were done under the radar, but finally it was figured out. And some of the things seized. So if you say, how much more could you possibly want? Well, 25 motor vehicles, 15 million in bank accounts, 1 million in cash in a safe, 18 residential properties, 12 motorbikes, jewelry, and this is the kicker, Two aircraft. I'm like, wow. You know, you could want a lot, apparently. That, that's, I, I don't have my sights set on that. But um, so they illegally profited from the commonwealth. Nehemiah could have legally increased his wealth. Legally. Before God, legally. However, because of the fear of God, he says, I'm not going to do that because I can see how the people are suffering. I want to contribute rather than take. He chose to spend it instead of adding to it in the fear of the Lord. And I'll let you guess who will receive the greater reward from the hand of the Lord. Someone who rorts $165 million, or someone who is bleeding, you know, red every month. But God's supplying the needs. Those who enrich themselves... And then there are those who are rich in integrity, and they are the wealthy ones. Nehemiah 5.17, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on the people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah goes the extra mile here. 
He had a pretty big table, I'd say. I'd like to say how big that table was, Nehemiah. Feeding 150 Jews plus visitors or foreign people who would be there. And he's like, ah, oh, come over. We, we're having a spread tonight, you know, and every 10 days we get a new shipment of wine in and here you can uh, be refreshed. He wasn't demanding things from the people to, he had these exorbitant tastes. No, he was supplying, he was paying the bill every day for this kind of food for people to have. He wasn't like a ruler who's living lavishly where everyone else is struggling. He, he was willing to supply the needs of hundreds besides himself. He wouldn't even require 1% of the entitlements that he could have had as a ruler. Not even one. You go, wow, he could have charged so much more, but he didn't. And, and kind of justify yourself? No, he didn't. He wasn't like a politician or a sports figure or celebrity or, or a preacher who makes his free appearances but has a foundation that you can put money into that's, you know, here and there invested. There was no book deal. There was no selling the story to the news. There wasn't any lamenting about how much it was costing him. You don't hear him ever complaining like, oh, you guys think you have it rough. Well, what I have to put on the table every day is way more than you have to think about. Right? He doesn't minimize their bondage. But before God, he does what's right. He made his prayer unto God, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Whether or not men recognized his devotion or sacrifice, it didn't matter to Nehemiah. But he wanted God to look favorably upon his giving, his service. And motive is so key when it comes to giving to the Lord. Turn to Matthew 6, verse 1 through 4. So whether you're somebody who feels like you're being asked to pay more than what you can afford, or whether you're someone who chooses to forego your legal rights in the fear of the Lord, it's important that our motive in doing so is to honor Him. Matthew 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Nehemiah did not draw attention to the fact he was giving uh, so he could be applauded or uh, respected by others. People saw what he was doing, I'm sure they wondered where all the money was coming from or where this food is coming from. You know, we haven't given him any money. It, we, we used to give the other governor money, but we haven't given him. Have you given him money? No, I haven't. Hmm. Interesting. And yet he has a, he has a lot of people over every night. You know, he's, he's supplying the needs of a lot of people. Even though people saw it, his motive was pure before God. And it's perfectly legitimate that we would want God to look favorably upon us, right? That if we're doing a good thing, we're like, Lord, I want to do this for you. Please look favorably upon me. He says, remember me, my God, 
for good, according to what I have done. You know, God looks upon us for good because of what Jesus Christ has done. However, he can still look favorably on us because of what we do as well. And that's perfectly legitimate for us to desire to please God with the things that we do. Not because we're hoping it would parlay into a grand reward, uh, but because we love him and we want to please him. Giving up 1%, it might not seem a lot, but it's the principle behind it that's important. You think of the woman who put in two mites in the temple while people are parading their great contributions in, probably loaded up with animals, and they're just having this, blowing a trumpet. Hey, oh, yeah, he's coming to give. Let's check it out. Whoa. Being quite impressed with the, the monetary sum that was placed in the temple. But when that woman dropped in those two mites, Jesus knew how costly that was for her. And he says, you know, she gave more than anybody else. Huh? They gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. God looks at the heart. And we can choose if we're going to walk in integrity or not. And may the Lord show you what that means. I don't know what that means to really any of you. But I've been examining my own heart and saying, Lord, show me. I, I want to care about the 1%. I want to be someone who walks in integrity and that you look favorably upon because the things that I do, I do because I fear you and because I love you in response to your love for me. Just want to exhort you with a final verse. After Paul exhorted those in Colossus to humble themselves, and he says, put on love, guys, the bond of perfection. This is like our identity in Christ. He says in Colossians 3, 15 through 17, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So give God 100%. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus thanking him that we can give, that we can serve, that we can be uh, seen favorably in his eyes. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the example of Nehemiah and how he was bold to do what was right even when the leaders were doing uh, what was not good. And thank you, Lord, for his, his grace and for his goodness in showing them their error, and for their hearts, Lord. That's the heart I want. That's the heart we want, I'm sure, Lord, that we could rejoice and be thankful and praise you even when uh, we've been corrected because we know that it's your will. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is steadfast, that it is true, and we can count on it. And I pray, Lord, you'd show us how we can be more thankful how we can commit ourselves wholly to you, that even, Lord, we would forego our rights in cases because we know that it's a heavy burden for someone else to bear. Lord, help us to be discerning and to be wise and to walk in the fear of the Lord. Thank you for all you've given us, Father. Thank you that you've supplied all our needs and that what you've given us is enough. 
And I pray we would be content in you, whether we're rich, whether we see ourselves as poor, knowing, Lord, that we are rich. And may we be rich in integrity, Lord, for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.